Welcome to Canadian Time Machine, a podcast that unpacks key milestones in our country's history. It's funded by the Government of Canada and created by the Walrus Lab. I'm Angela Misri. This episode is about the 50th anniversary of the Ugandan Asian resettlement. Just a note before we get started, this episode delves into instances of violence and displacement and may be distressing for some listeners. Of my family, my mother was uh, and uh, aunt was forced to leave my elder brother and my sister had their citizenship withdrawn. That's John Nazareth. He's a Canadian citizen whose family was forced to leave Uganda after President Idi Amin announced in August 1972 that all residents of Asian descent had to leave the country. The leader had just come into power via a military coup the year before and was intent on creating Uganda for Ugandans. This was an exciting moment for a country that had endured years of racism and British colonialism. But over the course of his regime, excitement turned to terror. Military police and death squads killed hundreds of thousands of indigenous Ugandans. And an entire population, more than 50,000 Ugandans of South Asian descent, were forced to flee their homes. Many of them had been in East Africa for multiple generations. In the 19th century, thousands of South Asian people were brought to Uganda as indentured laborers to build the railway. Others migrated to build businesses or work in civil service under British colonial rule, where they established roots in Uganda. Idi Amin gave people like Nazareth's family only 90 days to flee the country. Shopkeepers, teachers, and engineers were forced to relinquish their properties, businesses, and community ties and start all over again, halfway across the world. And so they packed up their suitcases and the little cash they were allowed to take with them. Given that many people were still technically British subjects at the time, the majority of those being expelled were able to go back to Britain. But Canada also played a crucial role in helping resettle over 7,000 Ugandan asylum seekers. Pierre Trudeau was Prime Minister at the time. He said he wanted to, quote, offer an honourable place in Canadian life for Asians being expelled from Uganda. So he set up an emergency assistance programme. Immigration officers were sent to Kampala to process applications. Medics were flown in and airplanes soon arrived, ready to bring thousands of people to safety in Canada. This was the first time Canada had accepted a large group of non-European immigrants. I'm now pleased to welcome two guests who can shed light on the complexities the resettlement brings up and what it was like to live through the expulsion from Uganda and relocate to Canada. Zulfikar Hirji is an anthropologist, social historian, and associate professor at York University. Dasneem Jamal is a writer, editor, and communications officer. She's also the author of Where the Air is Sweet, a historical fiction about the Ugandan-Asian expulsions of the 1970s. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'd like to start by hearing a bit more about your individual stories. So, Dasneem, would you like to tell us a little bit about how your family was affected? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So my family um, lived in, in Uganda in 1972. My father um, had been born there. My grandfather moved there from uh, the Indian state of Gujarat in in the 20s. And um, my mother was born in Kenya, but had, had moved uh, to uh, uh, my family's hometown, my father's hometown called Barara in Uganda. And so, uh, yeah, we were obviously part of the, um, the Asian uh, Ugandans that had to leave. Um, and 
we did leave. My mother, my brothers, and I left uh, just before the end of the deadline in uh, in November, almost exactly 50 years ago. My father stayed behind after the deadline. Um, he was really reluctant to leave Uganda, and so um, he did uh, join my mother and brothers and I. Um, uh, we were initially in the United Kingdom and then came to Canada, and then we all returned uh, to Kampala in Uganda for a time. Then lived in Kenya briefly because my father still still wanted to make his way back to Uganda. But after about a year and a half, it became clear that wasn't going to happen. And then uh, so about 1975, my my family settled in, in Canada um, uh, for good. So that's sort of my family's experience in a nutshell. That sounds incredibly disruptive. Was there a specific reason your father kept trying to get back there? Um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, in some respects, it's a, it was a, a fairly simple reason, which was that he really in his heart felt Ugandan. Um, he also thought Idi Amin um, and his his rule wouldn't last. It was, you know, it was a, it was a pretty dramatic coup. It was an unstable government. Uh, and he just thought this this will blow over. Um, and, you know, it, it all seemed a little bit crazy to, to just give up your entire home and family, and, you know, and leave. Um, and so he just thought, no, no, I'm not leaving. This is my home. So that was sort of the simple simple side of it and in, in more complex terms um he just had never known anything else and it and it was pretty terrifying to to start a new life uh in a new country with with no money no resources uh having you know elderly father and young children um and so he just you know emotionally had a really difficult time um sort of grasping that this was the best thing to do which was to leave so um and, and in fact you know i wrote a novel uh examining all this, uh, particularly uh, parts of the novel examine a uh, character very much like my father who struggles to, to let go of what he knows and embark on what he doesn't know, which, which I think all of us you know, can relate to as, as a really challenging thing to do. I agree. I think that would transcend any kind of disruption like that to your family. Zulfikar, can you tell us about some of your memories from that time, that expulsion time? Well, I was uh, seven years old um, in 1972. Uh, my parents uh, came from uh, Uganda. My mom was born in Nairobi, but uh, my father uh, lived in Uganda, was born in Uganda. And his father uh, came to East Africa in 1909. And he went on to establish a business in a town called Bombo. And then um, he returned to India a couple of times to get married. Um, his first wife passed away um, in, 19, uh, in the 1920s, and then he returned um, to India to uh, get married. And then in 1928, he came back to Uganda with his new bride, and um, he, they went on to have nine children. He had three children from his first wife. And so the 12 children all lived in Uganda, including my dad. And uh, so it was a pretty um, uh, generational kind of experience because many of these family members all lived in Kampala. Some of them lived in a big extended household. And I remember quite vividly the last days of the um, time we spent in Kampala uh, were all spent in a big house that my grandfather um, owned. Uh, the brothers and sisters, their, ch their wives and husbands and their um, children, we all kind of were in hunkered down in this house. 
Uh, and, um, and in 1972, when the expulsion happened, uh, the entire family was scattered all over the world. And, uh, and so it was a pretty, um, incredibly disruptive, uh, experience for many families like my own, which overnight kind of had this, um, uh, experience of, uh, being sort of separated from their, you know, generational histories of living in a place. Uh, and I distinctly remember that, um, my mother, my sister and I, um, actually didn't, had already left Uganda, um, before the expulsion. And we ended up, um, going to Nairobi where my mom, uh, was born and stayed with her family. And it was not until the very, very last moment that my dad decided that it was time to, um, uh, to leave. And, uh, and, uh, so he did. And then we ended up in Canada. Uh, so it was a, you know, quite vivid memories for me. I distinctly remember the um, military vans and trucks uh, on the streets. I remember soldiers. Uh, I remember tanks. Uh, I remember there was a general sense of terror, of what's going to happen. Uh, my grandparents um, were not able to come to Canada because Canada had a point system at that time and they were not deemed you know qualified and they ended up in england before they uh, were finally able to be sponsored to come to canada so it was a pretty traumatic experience for my grandparents i think they um, never imagined leaving their homeland for them although they had connections to india historically i firmly believe that my grandfather thought of kampala as his home and uh, and so did my father. In fact, to the extent that after having spent, uh, you know, decades in Canada, he decided that it was time when Uganda was um, sort of accepting um, applications for uh, Ugandan Asians to return to Uganda, that my father decided to go back. And he lived out his last, the last years of his life in, in Uganda, in Kampala. Tasneem, going back to your childhood again, that question I have had for myself so many times, that age-old question, where are you from? No, really, where are you really from? Can you tell us a little bit about how you developed your lines to respond to that? Yeah, I, I, um, I've told this story before. It's, um, it's kind of almost a formative experience when I was in first grade and living in Kitchener in Ontario. Um, I start, So we, we went... Essentially, it was from I was in school in Nairobi, and then we 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 came as landed immigrants in January 1975. So I, I sort of joined school in the middle of the year, and um, I had a lovely teacher, um, very sweet woman. Um, she had white hair, and and she's very sort of you know sweet grandmotherly like lady. And I remember her asking me where I where I was from or where I was born. I think she said where where were you born? And I said um, Uganda, and um, she looked at me kind of quizzically and she said, Oh, wasn't it, um, wasn't it India? And, and I remember at the time thinking, okay, I got it wrong. Next time I, I'll say India and um, just sort of, you know, wanting to be right. Right. As a child, you want to, you want to, you want to have the right answer. And so um, that sort of stuck with me. And of course, as you know, as I got a little bit older, I realized I don't have to actually um, lie, um, but I do need to, I wanted to answer it and sort of get it out of the way as, as quickly as possible. You know, as a, as a, a kid, I just wanted to be normal. I didn't want to be weird. And so I, I would say Uganda, uh, I was born in Uganda. My grandparents are from India. Um, and then, 
you know, we got kicked out by EDME. Those, those were my lines. It was usually, it was usually three sentences. Um, and hopefully there were as few questions as possible that came after that, depending on the audience. If the, if the people are a little bit older, you know, grown ups, they might be intrigued, but for the most part, um, that, that was kind of sufficient. And, and the funny thing is it, it, um, looking, I'm just thinking of this now that as, as I got older, it started to kind of annoy me that people viewed my family's experience in Uganda as, um, you know, as really kind of temporary, you know, like, Oh yeah, I would read, I would read histories of Uganda and it, maybe you'd get two paragraphs about Asians and they were, they were almost uniformly called, uh, traitors, Asian traitors. And, it just sort of implied that they just, it was just a temporariness to their, um, to their connection, to their experience in, in Uganda. And, and that wasn't my experience. I had, I, I had a very kind of emotional connection and I was, I was a few years younger than Zulfikar. So I don't have, I don't, I, I don't have vivid memories of Uganda. I have fragmented um, early childhood memories. And so I, my, my, connection to Uganda was really emotional. And so I couldn't explain it. I couldn't articulate it. I didn't have memories to tell people about. So, so while I was myself saying, you know, oh yeah, we're, yeah, yeah, we are originally from India. We we had this stopover in Uganda. Um, It was, it was, it was simultaneously making me angry because it wasn't accurate. You know, it just wasn't right. And so ultimately, you know, that is what led me to write, to write my novel because I, I wanted to convey how deep the roots went in, in Uganda. And, and um, you know, that I had, and in Zulfikar as well, I'm sure, had we have family members who were born, lived, and died entirely in East Africa, in Uganda and Kenya. And so to suggest that it was just this kind of, um, I don't know, that it was just not, it was this just a sort of transitional place um, is, is not accurate. And so, yes, I had my little pat answers, and then they ended up kind of creating... Um, creating something that I didn't end up, you know, I didn't like, but of course, as a kid, I was trying to fit in and um, got older and I am and I rectified it. It's just so weird to have to defend that kind of thing. Having done it myself as well, it's weird to have to defend that and to have to answer questions about this when so many people don't have to answer those questions. I know how it made me feel to have to answer that question, not only from people of Canadian background, let's say, but people from different, you know, people of color in different cultures would not accept the answer that I was giving them. And it's so incredibly frustrating. Yes, that's right. That's right. Like, yeah, yeah, because it's complex, right? So yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and I I often get, and then when I got older, it was like, if it's a South Asian person asking, then, you know, then they also usually expect, okay, so... Punjab, Gujarat, you know, what, what, what state in India are you from? And yeah, it becomes very, um, it becomes very complicated. Zulfikar, can you tell us more about how the dictatorship itself impacted other non-Asian Ugandans? I understand that thousands of them experienced violence and even death. Yeah, I mean, there are different estimates on what happened during the eight plus long year reign, um, of Idi Amin. Um, and, uh, the figure that I quote, because it seems to be that people generally um, quote, is Amnesty International has estimated 500,000 uh, indigenous African Ugandans were um, were murdered, um, tortured, um, uh, killed under um, the regime. Uh, so that in itself, um, you know, numerically seems to, you know, 
overwhelmed the number of Ugandan Asians that were expelled. But I think doesn't um, necessarily, you know, uh, account for the generational trauma that Indigenous Africans in Uganda have experienced um, as a result of the brutality of uh, Amin's regime, and uh, and many of them um, are still in the process of grieving, recovering, and. Uh, reconstructing their lives. Uh, so I think that that is um, a really important um, aspect of this history that needs to be uh, communicated um, as we think about uh, this year being the 50th year of the uh, expulsion. Uh, I often wonder um, for myself, uh, when I was a child, uh, there were two very um, important women in my life, uh, the two um, nannies who used to take care of us. And um, I often wonder what happened to them because, uh, you know, while we had the opportunity to, to leave, um, they and their families um, remained. Uh, and so I think that that for me always is kind of haunting to think about when I'm, you know, recalling my own experience of this uh, expulsion uh, and in terms of uh, their experience, I don't know how many of those uh, families, individuals have had the opportunity to tell their story um, uh, in this 50-year uh, anniversary of the expulsion. Well, speaking of telling your story, I'm wondering if Dasneem can tell us a little bit more about her book and what kind of impact it has had on the Ugandan Asian diaspora in Canada. Yeah, it's been. Um, it's I can I can speak to to sort of personal um, anecdotes and uh, you know emails and conversations that I've had around around the book, which which to me have have ultimately been the most meaningful. Um, where I'll hear from particularly people in my parents' generation, so who would have been, you know, but my father would have been in his early 30s, uh, 50 years ago, and um, would come up to me and say, you know, oh, I, it, reading the book felt like, I felt like, you know, I was there again, which was just really so important to me because I struggled telling the story because I, I wasn't there for a lot of it. You know, the book covers 1921 until 1975. So I was just that I existed in the tail end of its chronology, but, um, but I wanted to, I wanted to bear witness to their experience because it was extraordinary and it, um, it didn't feel extraordinary at the time, right? They're just people living their lives and um, they didn't really, you, you know, you don't look at your life as a grand story when you're in the middle of it. And so I, I think it felt, um, it felt really validating for them. And, and it opened up conversations with children. Um, you know, again, then there would be people who would be what, what I consider quite young, who were, who were born in Canada, but might've been born in the eighties. And, and, you know, they, they would say that they didn't really understand, you know, we had this sort of weird history is how they put it. And they didn't quite get it. And they didn't have any idea what their parents had, you know, had been through. And, um, and I was just thinking when Zilfarga was speaking about the indigenous African population, and that was a, a, a part of the story that I felt, well, it was of two minds. I, I, it wasn't my story to tell. And I, and I really do hope that it gets told um, more widely. But um, 
I, I wanted to make sure that I included characters in the novel, indigenous African characters, um, but I also didn't want to speak for them. So it was a real, it's a bit of a, a you know, a delicate balancing act where, you know, I had some, I did have some, some minor characters um, because if you don't include them, then you're erasing them from their own history as well. Right. So there's that, that little bit of balance. Um, uh, but, but as I said, I did include them in that, and that felt, um, that felt important. Um, but on the whole, it was, yeah, I felt that um, I was able to bear witness to, to, um, you know, ordinary people uh, living through extraordinary circumstances and, and, um, and, and felt quite gratified. Certainly from my father meant a great deal to him. And I'm, you know, I was really glad that I was able to do it while he was still alive and, and not only use him as a resource, resource, but sort of, sort of see him um, or hear him acknowledge that, um, you know, yeah, that was, that was, a, that was a life, you know, and, and, and we lived that and we did that. And, um, and it, yeah, it just, it just felt lovely to, um, to, to have been, you know, sort of been afforded the privilege of, of telling their story, stories, plural. Zulfikar, speaking of stories, when did you actually get resettled in Canada? So we arrived in, in the winter of, um, well, 1973. So in the January, I believe, uh, we, uh, arrived first of all um, in Vancouver. Um, I think we had a stop in Montreal uh, and then we arrived in Vancouver. So the first place we kind of headed was the Tropicana Motor Inn um, uh, on Robson Street in Vancouver. And when we arrived at the airport, there was um, a man there waiting for us uh, with coats and winter coats and it was cold. And uh, we were taken to the Tropicana Motor Inn where we stayed for a number of months um, until we we moved out, um, those mo- those sort of hotels in that kind of Robson Strip were the kind of residences of many Ugandan Asians who arrived in Vancouver, and um, and they were you know places where people sort of established themselves, um, got jobs uh, wherever they could find them, and then gradually started um, you know finding their you know rented accommodation or housing where they could live. Uh, I remember it was a very um, it was very disorienting um, in some ways. Uh, we were living in this big house in Kampala, and and then we were you know on in, in travel mode for some months until we arrived in Vancouver, and then we were living in a in a one bedroom you know motor inn uh, hotel, which was which was fine. I mean, it, it didn't it, we I didn't really feel it as a discomfort in that sense, but it was disorienting because where was this place? And everywhere you looked on Robson Street, there was, you know, there were the things were different. There was, you know, delicatessens, which we had not not seen and, you know, shops that we had not, you know, had the opportunity to kind of experience that kind of, you know, lifestyle and so on. So it sounds like it was an unsettling resettlement process. But how did you feel supported? I mean, you were very young, but how did you feel supported by Canada's government at the time? Well, sure. I mean, I mean, I hear stories from, you know, people who came and, you know, they were given this, you know, initial housing, they were given, you know, winter clothing, they were, you know, given uh, things, you know, uh, social services, which would help them to find jobs. 
I think there was there was a fair bit of uh, initial support, and then people were sort of encouraged to kind of move on, uh, move out of the housing that was being provided, uh, subsidized or provided by government, and find jobs. And many of them ended up in many people ended up in in low age jobs like parking lot attendants or dishwashers or night porters in hotels. Um, I have family members who worked in the lace factory here in Toronto, where I live now. Um, you know, so women and men um, of, of different um, ages and and, and occupation, you know, occupational skills, had to reskill, had to upskill, had to change their vocation from what they were doing in Uganda and and find those jobs. And I think that there was some support, but I don't think there was a a kind of a, a robust understanding of what the kind of process of living in Canadian society was like. And in the 1970s, um, there wasn't the awareness and the vocabulary, the grammar to deal with things like racism. Um, uh, there wasn't uh, a kind of a, an appreciation of, of what it meant to be displaced um, uh, from your country. You just kind of, you know, got along. And that occurred both in the workplace, in the classroom, and also at home. I remember my own sort of process of kind of getting along was quite difficult at times um, because I was always, you know, screamed at by, you know, some of the older kids saying, Packy, go home. Uh, and I didn't even understand what that meant initially until I realized that they Paki meant being from Pakistan. Well, I wasn't from Pakistan. But nevertheless, um, you know, some of these incidents got quite violent. And in fact, there was a duration of time when I had to be taken to school in a police car. Um, and my parents uh, just kind of just said, you know, keep, keep your head down and don't argue back and just get along. I think there's a fear on the part of, you know, minoritized communities in general, but also people who are then also refugees or people who have fled a, a traumatic situation to just want to get along, not make waves, not speak out, not talk about injustice for fear of being then perhaps deported or sent back or somehow then re-victimized as the, you know, in the future. And I think I'm using this vocabulary now, but I just know that in the 70s, people didn't speak this way. It was, it was, uh, Canada was very much a very, um, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, word, a very white country. And uh, there wasn't an appreciation of how this minority population, invisible minority population, was going to settle in those ways. Um, and so I think that that aspect of settlement wasn't really well attended to. And, uh, and I think that that part of it, uh, is the part that stays with you sometimes um, rather than the part perhaps that, you know, the Canadian government was there to help. Uh, so I think that that's how I kind of describe that kind of dual kind of experience, both positive and also the lingering um, emotional and affective experiences of having to settle in a country which um, hadn't been fully prepared in the ways to deal with people who were remarkably different with different histories than the, the majority Canadian population who was living here. I think it's fascinating that you and I come from very different places, Zulfikar, but I've had the exact same, like the story you just told about people calling you Paki. 
I had the same thing, and I had to go home and ask what they meant because I had no idea what the heck they were referring to. And to find out they were trying to slag me for being Pakistani, which I wasn't, but also didn't understand how it was an insult. It's really interesting that we both had that experience and just sad. It's incredibly sad. It's 50 years, so it's the 50-year anniversary of resettlement. So I have to ask, Tazneem, what does this anniversary of resettlement mean to you? What do you think it means for your community and to the people around you? Yeah, so I'm, 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 I'm recalling when Idi Amin died um, in 2003 and how kind of um, unremarkable the event felt um, for my family. I, I remember you know, chatting with my, my father about it. And it was like, yeah, whatever, you know, it's, um, he's dead. It, it, just, it just seemed, um, I guess what I'm trying to say in, in response to your question is I, I, um, I'm kind of, and part of me is, wow, 50 years, it's been 50 years, that's half a century. Um, but also that I, 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 I don't sort of mark my life, you know, based on the dates of, of the expulsion, um, and so it, it, in that sense, it doesn't feel terribly remarkable. Uh, we did at, at my local Jamaat Khanna had somebody had called and asked if I would, if I would come um, one night for a, um, we just kind of wanted to do a little commemorative event. Um, so I, so I went and it was, it was really quite um, lovely because the, 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 the Jamaat uh, has, has expanded considerably in the last 50 years so that you have, you don't just have East African Ugandans or even Pakistani, you know, like it's not just South Asians, there are Afghanis and Syrians. And it's just this really quite um, large, diverse group, which is, which is really lovely. And, and the, and the, the sort of the main people talking at this event were the little core, you know, initially when um, in 1972, when, when Ismaili, Ismaili uh, uh, Ugandan Asians in particular settled in this area, they would, um, they would gather in each other's houses to, to, to um, have a house of worship. So they just sort of did that. And when they were, there were too many people and these apartments weren't big enough, you know, they started to get together in the basement of, of a local church and uh, eventually rented a, a warehouse. And so people were talking about that. And there was probably, I think there were five or six families and, and, you know, my father's died. A few of the people died, but there, there were um, a small group of people telling their stories. And, you know, one of them ended up in uh, as a refugee, in a, sort of like a refugee camp in, in Italy. And he told of this extraordinary story of how he was just feted and had a wonderful time. And, you know, just it was such interesting stories. And um, it was a really happy um, occasion. Everybody was just sort of laughing as they were recounting the, the grown ups I'm talking about. Not, and I think what Zulfikar talks about is really, really important. Um, but the, the adults, people who were adults then recounting the stories now and how everybody's really settled and, you know, we're financially secure and we're sort of got this good life in the West. And uh, it was just a really kind of, um, it was a celebration, I'd have to say. It was a, it was a really sweet, um, it was a sweet time. And it was like these, the, this gang was like the, we're, we're now settled, we're now helping you know, refugees from Syria and refugees from other places. And so it, it felt, um, it felt like a sort of like a success story, you know, it was really, it was really quite touching. And, and I, I, um, I, I was struck when Zulfikar was speaking, I, I have to say, I was like, I, I think there's a part of me that I wouldn't, I wouldn't say has blocked out those early years so much as just 
did what he said, which is you just put your head down and you get along. Yeah, there was no vocabulary to express what was going on. There was I didn't know the word displacement. I didn't even I don't think they used to say ethnic cleansing back then. It was just um like I said, I had my phrase. We got kicked out by EDM in and that that was the extent sort of, of of how I would talk about it. And um you know I've I've just finished a a novel um where the characters are my age and living in um you know they're they're sort of southern Ontario and, and um British Columbia are the two locations where where these people live their lives and they're they're two women and um it's not an overtly um I wouldn't call it an overtly political book in any way. There's, there's, it's very unlike where they are sweet. It's, it's a, it's a very sort of internal, personal um, novel. But at the heart of it, it's, 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 it's following these people, you know, these young women who are Western educated, who you know came before they were eight years old to Canada. So they, you know, but they say if you come before eight, you can assimilate really well, and they know the language, and they're, you know, they're very good in their careers, and they really struggle, you know, they really struggle. And there's things they, you know, there's a sort of family history. You Either you can't escape or it's extremely difficult to escape. And, and it's, it's even in, in this book, this stuff isn't articulated. And I realized when I, when I heard him speak that I, it's not something that I, I even consciously talk about. Um, um, but it's, it's, um, it, it's lovely that now there is that vocabulary. And so sometimes I'll, I'll hear a young person of color sort of bring something up and I, and, and I, in, in the workplace, for example, and I, and I watch myself react and, and my reaction tends to be initially, why are you making such a big deal out of it? You know? And, and I've, I've been catching myself that, you know, I really internalized, just shut up, <laughs> fly under the radar. You know, I, my dad, I remember my father after nine 11, when there was a very strong anti Muslim sentiment, uh, in the media and elsewhere. And, and he, I remember sitting with him one day and he was, he was terrified. Like I could see that palpable fear. And he said something like, Oh God, our name is Jamal. This is so difficult. You know? And I said, and I said, are you actually, are you afraid we're going to get kicked out of Canada? And I, and he said, yes. And I, and I kind of dismissed it. I said, that's it's not going to happen. This is, you know, this is Canada. And he just, of course he's experienced such a, insane thing happening so he wasn't comforted by my words but i i just i i actually saw trauma playing out right in front of me in him where it was this is what that this is what displacement does to you this is what that kind of um no we weren't you know we didn't have to dodge bullets and we weren't in refugee camps for 20 years which are absolutely horrible things to go through but we we did experience that that sort of um, rent, renting of your psyche, right? Like it's, it's, um, it shakes you and it, and it, um, and it also explains why our parents' advice to us was, you know, just, um, sort of write it out. You know, they're, there's, they don't understand. They don't know what they're talking about when they're saying packy, go home, just, you know, just go do your stuff and, and, you know, make sure you're smarter and <laughs> get better grades and do all those things. Cause it's going to be tough, but, but, um, you know, just put your head down and, and do it. I love this idea of this jamaat, this gathering to celebrate the successes coming out of so much trauma. Zulfikar, can you tell us what you think about ways that we could use to commemorate this anniversary, this 50th anniversary of resettlement here in Canada? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, 
Well, I think I think when you know I'm considering what it has meant for me uh, personally, it has um, you know I'm 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 am t- torn uh, because of what I mentioned earlier about um, the stories we ha- we don't know um, um, from Uganda uh, of of people we you know that that cared for us um, that we worked with that our families you know, uh, sort of the people who work in, in, the sh- in, in the shops or in the businesses or in the fields. Um, I think that that for me is, is a very jarring dissonance, the silence that um, I think um, needs to be discussed um, in all its complexity. Uh, but I also think that the settlement experience um, is is an interesting one that that needs to be thought through and and considered. Um, uh, I think I think one of the things that's interesting and and Tasneem touched on it was the idea that you know, uh, that in 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 response to having to deal with the processes of settling in 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 a Canada that was not what it is today, you know, a lot of us didn't talk about those experiences and um, and still are very reluctant to do so. I think that 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 silence also um, has consequences because what it means is that we aren't able to sort of uh, talk to the broader Canadian public about some of the missteps that happened in that process as well. Um, And that means that incoming communities in Canada um, will have to go through potentially those same experiences and I just wonder, um, should they have to? And am I in some way, um, you know, able to ease those uh, experiences of settlement? Uh, so I want to be able to figure out a way to talk about these stories so that people who have um, opportunities to, to change them can, can, and can begin to do so. Uh, you know, I, I think that what's... What's interesting here is that, you know, when do you stop? I, one of the things that's kind of coming to my mind is when do you stop being um, someone who has, you know, had to flee a country? When do you stop thinking of yourself as a refugee or a displaced person? And uh, and I think every time we have these um, sort of uh, experiences of, you know, celebration or commemoration or, you know, recollection, it, it, it defines us. It keeps on defining us. And I think that th- that... Therefore, we can't ever rest into being Canadian, uh, and uh, and and so that becomes, uh, you know, your identity or part of your identity forever. And uh, and I and I just wonder whether that's a, a, a you know that that's a positive thing or not a positive thing. Uh, I still, owing to my experiences as a child, because. Um, we had lost our uh, our papers as soon as our, our car was broken into our papers were lost and so we couldn't you know travel very easily and um we oftentimes wanted to go across the border to you know visit the the us and we we um every time we crossed the border we had all these problems so to this day my hands sweat as i pass through immigration um because of that experience and so i think that those those experiences of, of displacement, uh, of, of moving from one country to another, are felt by many communities. 
And, um, and so I just want to find a way that um, young people in those communities who are coming here or, you know, uh, they're, you know, them, as adults, they can they can find a place to kind of say, well, this is what I'm going through. This is how I'm experiencing this country. Um, it's not all uh, perfect, and um, and so I think that that part part of thinking about this uh, this this 50 years also reminds me of, of of all those those aspects, and also the idea that you know you can be grateful to Canada for having opened its doors but that doesn't mean in my mind anymore that you can't be critical of Canada for things that it could do it didn't do well and could do better and I think in my parents minds and I hear this from a lot of people um, you know who came from Uganda is that you know there's this kind of incredible and and rightfully so a response to Canadian largesse uh, you know that Canada was one country which opened its doors to us but that is also often coupled with, well, don't speak out, don't say anything because of this experience of thinking, perhaps, that if you say anything out loud, that you would be somehow um, sent back or sent away or kicked out. And I think that what's interesting is, of course, is that, you know, one of the wonderful things about Canada is the ability to have the ability to speak and to speak critically about uh, processes, systems, uh, government, uh, institutions. And I think that that is an important space for people like writers, like Tasneem, for podcasters, for you know academics, for artists, for everybody to use that civic space responsibly to shape a society that they want. And I feel that sometimes, um, these moments of commemoration don't include a kind of a healthy critique of what things could be done better and differently. And, and after 50 years, I always think one of the things I didn't grow up with was my story or the story of these communities or many other uh, refugee um, and displaced communities in the Canadian school system. Uh, my son, who is now uh, almost 21, he didn't grow up with those stories and those histories. And I think that that is a very uh, difficult thing for me to swallow after being here um, for, you know, some five decades, is that uh, shouldn't a commemoration experience like this start to be part of the story of Canada? Shouldn't these stories be part of curricula? Shouldn't they be told in classrooms? Um, not just the Ugandan Asian one, but of, you know, Afghanistan, of Syria, of many other places in the world where Canadians now come from. But those stories are, but Canada's history is still very much a history of a particular type. And it doesn't reflect Canada today. And I think that, yeah. It's, we've earned a privilege by being here, and we have to tell these stories. Well, I think that that's what, when we talk about civil society, when we talk about civic space, it's about inclusion. It's about an equitable sense of history. It's about, in, I mean, 
the you know the, the the amount of effort and energy and resources that indigenous people in Canada have had to under you know take to fill to make their stories heard um, should be you know a lesson to us all that that is that is you know the first Canadian story but new immigrants who come here um, should the Canadian story also include them uh, I and I don't know if it does to any extent and and that really worries me because is it going to take another 50 years for that to happen that's a really good point I'm gonna say thank you for spending this time with us I really appreciate you guys taking the time thank you so much thank you thank you Thank you for listening to Canadian Time Machine, funded by the Government of Canada and created by the Walrus Lab. This episode was produced by Carol Rolando and edited by Andre Pru. Amanda Capito is the executive producer. Our next episode will be in French and we'll dive into the 175th anniversary of Irish immigration to Canada during the Great Famine in Ireland. Like all episodes, the transcripts will be available in both English and French. To read the transcripts, and to learn more about historic Canadian milestones, please visit thewalrus.ca slash Canadian Heritage.